Today, we are talking bonefish basics. Bonefish are regarded as one of the holy grail species by fly anglers. Growing well in excess of 10 pounds, bonefish do everything a trophy species should. From providing thrilling polaroiding experiences in ankle deep water, to ripping hundreds of yards of backing off fly reels, bonefish will do everything to test the most experienced of anglers. I'm joined by shop captain Andrew Fuller and Scott Xantalakis of Wilderness Fly Fishing. Both Andrew and Scott have an abundance of bonefishing experience between them, including fishing in gold-class destinations such as Cocos Keeling Islands, Aitutaki, Cuba, the Seychelles, and of course, Christmas Island. Andrew and Scott will reveal all there is to love about bonefish and what you need to know for success in chasing these elusive creatures. What an introduction. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> got the heroes at the table, <laughs> bonefishing experts. Yeah. I got lost then. I was just like, geez, these That's blokes sound good. Yeah. <laughs> it's you and I. <laughs> Who's he talking about? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for pumping our tyres there, mate. Um, yeah. You, I mean, we've both done our fair share of bonefishing trips, obviously. Uh, absolutely. And I really have to thank you, actually. It was working in the shop here many years ago that I didn't have, uh, you know, I, I did very little saltwater fishing. I was a trouty through and through, you know. You know, if you could open up my chest and see my heart, it was the colour of a brown trout, <laughs> you know, spots on my heart. But Just but like your chest, Yeah, mate. just like my chest. <laughs> it's yeah. literally painted on his chest. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I've got to see that later. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Hey. Okay, two beers. Two, two, two beers two, when I have a look. <laughs> too much, mate. Don't come on too heavy. But it was, yeah, it was, um, it was the... The fly shop and my it was sort of through a lack of knowledge about saltwater fly fishing. So coming into the shop, I could you know name all the trout flies and all this and the gear, no problems. But for me, it was you look at all the salty stuff and the size of the reels and the flies, and for me, it was a little bit overwhelming at the start. Yeah, and I was thinking, geez, this is an area that I don't have a lot of knowledge in. And you said you got to go saltwater fishing. Yeah, I shouldn't say f the the trout but you're like go catch some real fish you know? <laughs> and i was like i do catch real fish i catch three pound browns you know but i reckon it will have been me banging on about it but equally the customers because we yeah. had so many people that were traveling and doing those trips that's right and you, yeah if you didn't have that experience yourself you did feel a bit naked didn't you yeah you did they just like you know just going up up north to catch some long tail tuna and uh, what rod and line do I need? Mm. And I was like, oh, you should try trout fishing. Because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, yeah, it was a lack of knowledge in that area really. And um, and it was exciting at the same time because all of a sudden there's this, there's a, another door that you can open just mm. when you think you know it all. There's there's that of saltwater fly fishing. And, and then you're jumping on a plane, going to exotic destinations and seeing is. different cultures and doing all that as well. Yeah, I think... That's a draw card with any type of fly fishing, even still with trout. It's the destination and the people um, that you go, the people that you hang out with and fish with, and yeah, where you go. And there's no exception to that. The the saltwater fly fishing destinations are awesome. You know the places it takes you. So they're beautiful, aren't they? Stunning. Yeah, it's absolutely pl- stunning. Yeah, that that like crystal clear blue water, shallow sandy flats, white sand. There's something pretty positive about being in that kind of destination, whether you're fishing or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the places, um, going to an island off Tahiti called Ana Atoll. Yeah. Um, with James from Fly Odyssey, R.I.P. No. <laughs> <laughs> we miss you, James. We miss you, James. He would. He doesn't listen to podcasts, I'm sure. But, but um, yeah, I just remember seeing that that because I'd been to a Christmas island a few times, but I remember and it was beautiful, clear water there. But Tahiti's and you've experienced those destinations, which just you think there should be a big resort, you know, forty story resort. With people on towers, and you're wondering these flats, crystal clear flats, getting this, solitude and oh, that, yeah, that quiet, island paradise, yeah, peaceful, quiet, and until that bonefish eats, and then it's mayhem. not peaceful. Yeah, it's mayhem. <laughs> Lots of yelling and they're carrying on, so it's good. Yeah, yeah. So but your was it, Christmas Island was your first bonefishing experience, Scotty. Yeah, yeah, but yep. first bonefish was Christmas Island. Yep. Do you remember that first bonefish I, that experience? I can remember it because it was a bit tough and. I just remember the guide, you know, these guides over in Christmas Island work 300 days a year guiding. They're, they're very busy and they see a lot of bonefish caught. But when it's your first time, they treat it like it's their first time as well, which yeah. is great. And at Christmas Island, you have sort of your first half day, we go fishing over there and I was so keen. And for whatever reason, that was a bit tough. So, And he's like, 
I've never had anyone not catch fish first day. I'll catch you fish. And I was like, yeah, okay, let's do that. And we kept on fishing because the light was fading. And I remember my first hookup because I didn't land it because it broke me off. So, and I just remember seeing it, track the fly, because as you know, we'll talk about that later, about how cool the sight fishing. See it, track my fly, and I'm thinking, that's not that big. Mm. Three pound or whatever, three, four pound. It's tracking the fly and ate the fly and I gripped it. And just went ping with 12-pound tippet because we went a bit lighter. I just went ping and I just looked at the guy and I said, was that that fish that broke me off? Yeah. That one that ate that little one? He goes, yes, it broke you off. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't care. They just like tie, tie another one. But I couldn't believe yeah. the but fish that size broke 12-pound tippet like it was nothing. I, I did hold on a little bit. I must – I gave it a bit of yeah, juice, but I could not believe that one. And then, you know, five minutes later, lucky enough to catch a similar-sized fish and just – I just remember that real screaming off sunsetting the power, the raw mm. power of these things. Where I, I still, I've experienced similar fish pull that hard, but uh, the power to weight ratio is phenomenal. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's fair to say nothing compares to a bonefish in that respect. That first blistering run is just next level, and it's clean, isn't it? You know, like they they will run back towards you and carry on a bit, but like that first run when they go, it's predictable in what's going on and yeah. then eventually they take as much line as they can and they stop and they come back they come back <laughs> and then the second run you get the second yeah. run which is about half the distance of the first run yeah and then yeah then it comes in but it, that that first blistering run and seeing for, for me I'd, i i don't think i'd ever seen my backing prior to a bonefish mainly because i'm not lazy and i'll run down a fish chase fish down new zealand instead of sitting in one spot but i just remember that that uh that line peeling off and just seeing that that the backing not go through the guy I'm like oh my you know my backing I finally got to see I was it. like saying to the guy check it out and he's like sees it every day whatever but, <laughs> but but I just remember it flying out only went probably twenty yards thirty yards out but I, I see my backing properly see my backing with a a drag that was done up you know a little bit mm. a fair bit tight so it was cool as like seeing that backing fly and that power I'm thinking that is blistering fast run i think it's worth saying that if you like trout fishing you like bone fishing it's yep. so similar in you know like the shallow water polaroiding side of trout fishing and, yeah. and bone fishing it's the same only these things can pull yeah. the trout backwards my, my first thoughts were seeing the bone fish on the flats was you know i've done a couple of trips out the western lakes of tasmania those sandy bottoms that you get where you got a brown tracking it's Almost so similar to that. It so is. You almost have to pinch yourself. It feels. Yeah, yeah it's tr- it's trouty as, and that's what that's what I felt the first time. Because I always I remember that first bonefish trip with the fly shop, saying I'll do this, I'll I'll tick the box of the bonefish thing, and then get back onto trout. And that's I think ten years ago, and I definitely would, you know, look more at a saltwater trip for myself that is than a trouty trip when I'm thinking, you know, for my fishing trips. And I know that's Right with you, Andrew, because when I was in the shop, you're always looking at all the saltwater destination. I'm like, why isn't he going trout fishing? And I sort of get it now. So <laughs> I do get it. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're pretty special fish. You know, I think if they jumped, they'd be the ultimate. Jumped, and if they ate off the surface, which we're going to do this season, we're going to try get one on the surface fly because they're in such skinny water at Christmas Island. Yeah. Like, and I believe, especially some, when they're in the schooling situation, it's a lot. I think that sort of uh, the pressure from the other fish might make them just look up, on, you know. Because sometimes even that's, you know, you've experienced t- that such skinny water where their backs are almost coming out. Like, surely they can look up a little bit. So, 100%. Yeah. But yeah, if they jumped and ate off the surface, they'd be the ultimate sports fish, I think. Yeah. I think it, there's nothing to be intimidated about with bone fishing as well. You know, like, and. Your Christmas Island guiding experience says that he can take any client, and it's unlikely that they're going to have a fishless day. Yeah, they're, they're a reliable species. They are. They are. I'm, I'm going to say when everything's right, the tides are right, and when they're in the mood, like they're ma- mostly if you present well enough and good enough, even if it's not so great, they're still going to eat your fly. Yeah, which they're I would t- tend to lean towards a more aggressive species. They're not like permit or something like that where you'll do everything right. And they'll still just you know shoot off, but um, yeah, they they do a lot right for us as as anglers because yeah, we can present well and you get rewarded, mm. and they come and eat. Yeah, I've I've ta- I think there's been 
two or three people over, over the trips over the you know the past few years that have never fly fished before. Their first experience is bone fishing Christmas Island because their mates dragged them along, and I'm pretty sure they have all caught fish every day. They've headed out, so that's the type of species they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. friendly. No, they're a special fish, and the thing I love about bone fish is. And now having done quite a number of destinations and chasing other species in these locations, uh, it it's the bonefish I miss when I get home. You know, it's like <laughs> everything else that I go there for and the bonefish are just that like they're the reliable thing on the side. Yeah. But then, as the you know, in the, that first week I'm home, the one species I'm missing is bonefish. Yeah, yeah. And that's pretty typical of most destinations. That's what's great about saltwater fly fishing. It won't ever just be a bonefish you can catch at that destination. There'll be there'll be something else there, which is great. Sort of the gateway drug of fish, really. Bonefish that lead to other species. So yeah, um, but yeah, they, they're the ones because even I did that sort of. You go off bonefish a little bit after many trips. You start to look at permit and tarpon and all sorts of other cool species. But then it's, it is the bonefish that yeah bring you back. And when you come back, you want to catch the bonefish first, and then go for the other species. Generally speaking, so yeah, yeah, great species. Yeah. It sounds like so similar to trout fishing. It's ridiculous. It's Are you crazy. sold yet? Oh, man, I was sold before go. this, but yeah, <laughs> no, nah, I need to go now. Um, in terms of going, destinations, the big one being Christmas for us here in Australia and also Cocos Islands. What do we think about the two? Andrew, you've recently been to Cocos. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of positives with both and both, I, I guess, fit into a fairly similar cost bracket in getting there. Um, the Fishing area in Christmas is just so expansive. Um, Cocos has a really good average size of fish. Um, I I would worry just how much pressure a small atoll like that can cope with. Um, but for now, it's a world class bone fishing destination with a lot of extra fish you can catch. Yeah. Um, probably worth mentioning Exmouth as well as being a bit of a bone fish destination, but being quite different to that of your Christmas Island and um, a bit deeper, the flats, yeah. doing it out of boats. Um, but, yeah, we're, we, we are lucky with what we have here. Yeah, definitely. And, Scotty, you've hosted a few trips to Christmas, fish there yourself. Yeah, um, like I said, first trip was a f- many years back with with the fly shop. Hosted trip there and it was... When uh, he says the fly shop, he means the fly fisher. The fly fisher. <laughs> yeah, sorry. The fly fisher. <laughs> he the only worked for us the for only, 10 years. The only, the only fly shop. Yeah. Um, so yeah so it was um yeah my experience yeah with with that was like i said tick the box bone fish get back onto trout and i've tried to go every year since then i think i have been there every year since since that first trip and sometimes two weeks because one week wasn't enough so um yeah it's an exciting destination like like uh andrew said largest coral flats in the world so you've got vast amounts of area and i know it is a popular destination and i guess some anglers for their first trip will think i don't want to go somewhere that's got so much fishing pressure or but um with their fisheries management over there they protected catch and release only from even from the locals in the ladder eat the bonefish so from the time i've started i've seen that progression because that was probably a year or two before my first trip and i've seen the bonefish population increase and size increase as well over that that period of protection, which is super important. Yeah, so it's just a – it is a cracking destination to go. These fisheries are always evolving, aren't they? Much like a, a river in New Zealand that floods. It, yes. It, they're yep. constantly changing. Yeah, yeah. And I've, and I've had some trips that aren't as successful as others, um, and I can't put it down to anything. Same moon phase, same tide, similar whatever, and they just seem to be very sort of spooky, that trip. Still caught plenty. But other trips, it's just like, why are these fish so on? You know, they're just really on on the go. So, yeah, pretty exciting destination. Yeah. And what makes a destination a good one? Is it like fish size, fish quantity, access? Uh, I, I think it's worth pointing out that they're all quite different. You know, at the uh, when I think and reflect on Christmas Island, I really enjoyed that Korean wreck fishing. Yeah. You know, like yep. the ocean side bone fishing. Um, and uh, Cocos, you know, my best memory from there was tailing bonefish in, you know, like a really high tide in some sort of backwater lagoon type situations. Um, At gummy minnow feeders in Venezuela. Um, You know, so bonefishing is not one-dimensional. It's not always shallow water wading 
flats and just having it be predictable. Um, so, yeah, that's, I think, the, the thing. With each of these destinations, they're all the best destination in yeah. their own right. It's just like comparing a small mountain stream in northeast Victoria to New Zealand. We both love them equally as much as each other, but they're so different. And that's yeah. the same thing with, with bonefish destinations. You have, like you said, that those tailing opportunities or, or like I said, a beachside where there's wave action and coming in real creeping and real shallow sort of wavy stuff here. It's a, it's, yeah, I think that's the appeal. It is not one-dimensional. They're not just on a lagoon flat that's mid-chin deep. They can be in deeper water, shallow water, super skinny water, doing different things, tailing with the tails up. The consistent thing, obviously, from what we're saying here, is it's always visual. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. And for me, any fishing, whether it's trout or anything, for me it has to be sight fishing. It's my favourite. People ask me, what's your favourite fish to catch? I said, it's not really a fish, it's a thing, and that's sight fishing. I love to see your, your target. It puts a bit of pressure on yourself as a, a, f- a fly fisher to hit the spot right. So, you, And that's what you see with bone fishing. It's generally when... We're never blind fishing. It's it's always casting to a sighted target, which is cool. I wonder if it's knowing your failure. Like you can identify so easily when you've stuffed it up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and don't worry, the local guides, you know, when you use local guides, they let you know very you, – you'll say to them, geez, I effed that up, didn't I? And they say, yes, you did. <laughs> but they're so honest. <laughs> matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, you did. Well, you stuffed it, but yeah. – like, and most bonefish destinations, there is some ones I find with larger fish, like Tahiti, like Ana. There's limited opportunities with shots. Um, you know, it it can be it can be sometimes a bit challenging, like that that end of, of the thing. So, yeah, it's um interesting. Yeah, they're all good, and there's always an, another destination. Yeah, yeah, and fishing out of boats for them. Yeah, is it a thing, or is it all Wade Polaroiding? Um, I love fishing out of a boat for them personally. You? Uh, Have you done it out of a – did you uh, – I fish for species out of a boat. Yeah. Uh, like permit and things like that. Same sort uh, of yeah, thing. But similar, yeah, similar thing. I, I do – I'm an out-of-the-boat kind of person, but I think that's just what you like. Like as it's not – I think don't think one's better than the other. You're not yeah. going to catch less or more fish, but I do I, – I like the freedom of not being in a boat. There you go. Full yeah. stop, whether it be trout fishing or – not, but obviously yeah. you go down, you use a boat if you need to use it and yeah. you're going to catch more fish. So, yeah. yeah. I think it, like the boat can open up a lot of things, um, but more than anything, it's just getting to the spot. Yeah, the access. Um, yeah. Inevitably, even when you're in the boat, if there's an opportunity to get out, you get out because yeah. you do then have more control and you're able to position yourself in a way that generally results in a better result than yeah. yep. out yeah. of the boat. Um, yeah. But, yeah, polling a flat, it's deathly quiet. It's, you know, all that, that same kind of feeling you get when you're waiting is the same polling, yeah. I reckon. It's just dead yeah. silence. That's what I think f- when you're fishing for bonefish, you really do, whether from a boat like that's, and they're using that pole to be stale, that you're hunting. And that's what I really feel like bonefish is most of the time you're hunting fish. You're not hoping. Like you're not putting in fish-likely spots. You're seeing the fish. And, um, and that's the cool thing that I enjoy with you really like that innate behavior of hunting kicks in whether it be a pole you know or on the flats it's awesome i think yeah like atataki would probably be the 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 main boat based fishery that aussies are getting to um and then xmouth as well of of course and they are deeper flats and um yeah i i don't know like if there's sharks then obviously you can find a boat um that kind of thing plays into it a little bit as well um but yeah, even in Atataki, you can get out of the boat yeah. at times if the tide's right. So, yeah, yeah. But absolutely. that high vantage point that a boat can offer, being that bit oh, higher, polaroiding. makes polaroiding that bit easier. And yeah, yeah. And certainly, yeah. if you, you, fitness is a, a concern, then a boat-based bone fishery might be worth considering. Yeah. So you're not necessarily disadvantaged then if you're DIYing it and you don't have access to a boat. And no, especially if you've got a means to like a kayak or something yeah. to get just to, to get to the flat that's yeah. the m- number yeah. one thing yeah most of the time you use your boat just to access yeah and for access simply that get that's why i like to use a boat shoot around that flat point it out jump out i like to generally wade with the tide at my back hopefully the, the bones are coming at you then like a river so yeah um wind and tide's good behind your back so that helps you know but if they're coming up from a, a little you know a little uh I guess a slightly, dep- you know, slight depression in the sand. Then you have to follow that wherever they're coming through. So for sure, 
Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we tip on some gear? Um, do we want to start with rod weights first? Sure. We hear people talking about six weights for bonefish. Do we think that's a good idea or not? Well, he's the man with the fly shop, so <laughs> yeah. you, what, what you need is five, six, seven, eight, nine, <laughs> four. You're going to need them all. You need yeah. four weights. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a – I'm not sure there's ever really a time and a place for a six weight, as in it's a very fun way to fish for them. And I get it. Go for your life. I get it too, the whole light thing. And I, I mean, with trout, we went through that. Maybe we're still going through it. Oh. The, you know, the ultra light phase of, Zero of gear. Weights. Well, yeah. gear and stuff like that. Yeah. But, you know, I've gone down, did the whole one weight stuff, but now I'm using four weights. You know what I mean? So yeah. you, you can, we played, I went, remember we went and took a, an Eden three weight, seven, six. Mm. To Christmas Island the second That's time, right. yeah, I mean, yeah. and we loaded up a five weight reel with enough backing, and it was a dog shit reel too. But we loaded up with a three weight because, and the point is, yeah, we caught heaps of fish here. But then it's a bit of a me monster thing. I think fishing light like that, mm. of course, you can catch them, and you can tell you mate you got them on a three weight and brag at the at the lodge. But really, you're doing no favors to that bonefish. You know, you're playing this fish that should come in in. You know, five to ten minutes. You, it's taking twenty minutes to get a three pound bone in, mm. which is not good for the fish. So, yeah, yeah, I think you know the thing for us is we can't tell people that they should take a six weight to a bone fish destination because no. if that's the only rod they turn up with, and then the wind kicks up and the guide's wanting them to put flies with dumbbell eyes on them, what do they do? That's and that's the whole thing. Like They've turned you, up with the wrong gear. There. Absolutely, you can count. You can catch fish with a six weight. Yes, yes, you can. That you can tick that. But like you said, the wind kicks up, the flies. You got to get a medium dumbbell eye, or even large sometimes. Then it becomes a real issue. It's not about catching the fish; it's about throwing the flies to catch the fish. That's where it becomes problematic with six weights. And I've seen that before, guys. I can do this, and then yeah, go cast into that thirty knot an hour, you know, and hit sixty feet with your six weight. Yeah, yeah. You know? So that's the thing, folks. Like the that's the fly size that should be considered more than the size of the fish that you're catching. As with most saltwater fly fishing, too, any species on the yep. fly. Yeah, yep. saltwater. Fly. I think if you were there for two or three weeks, like, and you had time to play around with stuff, then that's when you might do it. But if you're on a six seven day trip, don't go stuffing around with six weights on bonefish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you you bring one if you want to play around with it. But like you said, the general in generally speaking. I would recommend this is Christmas Island, so other yeah. destinations may be different where there's really big bones, but an eight weight for me is that all round bone fish rod. So especially today's eight weights that they feel like seven weights. Yeah, they yeah. feel like a tr- yeah. they feel like a six weight. You yeah. know, yeah. it's so light and so easy to cast them with that heavier fly line. You don't see anyone struggling. Like if you can chuck a magoo out in a lake out in Ballarat or a, a bead head, a three mil bead head nymph on the on the goal, but you can definitely cast a bonefish fly. They're quite light, and and with that heavier rod, it's just easy, so mm. much easier. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And for Cocos, say, do you still think that eight's the weapon of choice? or? Yeah. Um, so the fly size is bigger. Yeah. Bigger dumbbell yeah. eyes. Um, and I fished a 10 probably most of the time I was there. Yeah. But when the wind dropped out and that tailing fishing I mentioned earlier – that's where I, I, I opted for the eight. Yeah. Just, yeah. It was yeah, a lot more fun, you know, lighter flies um, and for delicate presentation of fish that are super wary, it's just the better tool for the job in that yep. situation. And if you've got a boat there that's got the extra rod on it, yeah. well, then, of course, you're just going to walk over to it and make the exchange. It's easier. Mm. I think that's the beauty, though, of, like, you fish with a 10 in Cocos and you picked up a very good GT while you're fishing for bones. So bycatch is something else to really consider on the flats. For sure, yeah. yeah. And I guess the triggers in Christmas. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, we all go for the bonefish um, when we first arrive there and then by day, you know, three, four, everyone wants to catch the triggers. So, And that's where you have to use the heavy flies and that's when the 10 weight comes out, you know. And it's great. Like most saltwater destinations like Cocos, usually the boat's pretty close. Lucky enough, we, you've got guides as well, usually, on saltwater destinations, the local guides that know the area better than anyone. So you usually say they've got the job of carrying your other rods, so they can carry a 12 or your 10, so you can just say, hey, all right, let's swap it. Look, there's a GT coming this way. Quick, we'll get the 12 weighed out. So that's a, the great thing about most saltwater destinations. The boat isn't usually too far away, and the guides can carry you, you know, the, the spare rod. 
done a good job of subtly saying they needed a six, eight, ten, and twelve. Well yeah, done, oh, yeah. <laughs> Ticked all the boxes. There we go. I, I should reckon, end the podcast now. I reckon gear-wise, though, this stuff is a lot more simple than trout. Oh, you know, I know so much more simple. When we kit people out for these sorts of trips, it's definitely less gear. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, the leaders are basic. You know, the the fly selection is narrowed down to what three main things: your shrimps, your crabs, your bait fish. There's three. It, Three things, yeah. I don't know. It's easy. Yeah. yeah. It's not, yeah. It's, it, the, usually the fly selection is not so complex. It might be a bit of weight issues or a sinking line or something like that. But your fly selection is very, very simple. So Yeah. yeah. You were probably going to ask us about lines. I was, yeah, literally yeah. going to say, yeah. Um, well, you'll be on top of your line games because I've fallen away to the wayside. But you, you, yeah. You're basically a fossil yeah. these days, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, it's simple. Like, I mean, for big big flies, you want aggressive tapers and you'll go through the best yeah. tapers and... And then for shallow water, you need presentation lines. So for sure, yeah. yeah. Like the, I I think generally speaking, the lines that have bonefish on the box, I find to be just that a little bit too delicate. You know, they're kind of once that wind does kick up, they're, they're very specific to the Caribbean style of, of fishery where the fish skinny are water. very skittish, very skinny water, um, and that's where those tapers work really well. But your, your standard infinity salt and your Chard's Grand Slam, if you're talking scientific angle lines, I think of the go. I When I can, I use a floating line. I love how you can pick up and recast a floating line that easily. Um, but for a place like the Cook Islands and certainly um, uh, Cocos, the sink tip lines are very useful too. When there's a bit more water on the flat, Solid you do want to get yeah. your flies that little bit deeper, that little bit quicker. Um, yeah, it makes a difference. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and floating, yeah, you, like as you touched on, floating lines being easier to recast. We see that with our trout fishing all the time. Like you fish a lake, easy to recast. And especially when you, you know, fish are moving around everywhere, you need to be able to change directions quickly. Definitely. Yep. Yeah. I think um, worth pointing out with lines too, the like a bonefish uh, – the big ones in particular aren't that predictable. They kind of they move in one direction and then they, they change direction and they're like, I don't know, it's almost like they're being cast to before. Um, so, yeah, that, that necessity to be able to pick up and recast is very real. And I think that's why good anglers, you know, do catch big bonefish and those where the casting's maybe not up to, to scratch don't get the same results. And it is just because... The bigger class of fish are less predictable. Yeah, the, that sort of zigzagging across the flats, and they seems like the from my experience with larger bonefish, they gen like you said, generally like you, in individuals or mm. maybe twos. Yeah, less luck, of a luck target. Enough, yeah, less sure. targets than than like your schooling bonefish of two pound or two to three pound. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Constantly change your so you, Yeah, you're right. The the bad anglers will catch more fish. It's like any mm. fishing gap. Uh, they catch more fish, but also. Like you said, they're aggressive sort of feeders, so they'll you get it in front of them, they're gonna yeah, they're gonna bite. Yeah. And flies. That we've touched on it already a little bit, but shrimps, crabs and bait fish. Yeah. Cocos is primarily a shrimp yeah. fishery. Yeah, the yeah. shrimps just seem to work really well. And larger shrimps. Yeah. Like that. Um but if we're talking more generally about bonefish flies, yeah. I like things that don't have a lot of flash in them. Yeah. You know, like yeah. the more drab flies, as much as I you know, when I'm in the shop, I I love the f- more flashy looking ones. But once I'm on day five of a trip, I'm just reaching for the one that just looks boring. Yeah, the, yeah, <laughs> not, not so exciting. I mean, Christmas time we tend to not use any rubber legs. Where I know other fisheries like in Tahiti and Atoll, we definitely want rubber legs and a, a bigger profile because they just all the fish needs to do is see it, so it can be seen. But it seems like the Christmas island fish, some fisheries will like that really boring sort of nothing sparse fly mm. which a lot of the, the guides will look at your fly because they know their bonefish better than anyone they'll sometimes look at it and if your wings got too much on it they just pull it out you know it's pretty easy they don't <laughs> muck around like, or your rubber legs they just rip them out you know if they don't like so i don't mind tying mine with a little bit more like stuff in them because you can always rip them out <laughs> like rubber legs and a bit of flash you can always cut it out so you can yeah you or can. you can always reduce what's in your fly you what's can't you add stuff though yeah can you? yeah that's that, right that's the point there um, but yeah, back to presentation, just yeah. different weights, different sizes. Yeah. You know, I, I reckon there'd be few bonefish destinations where you couldn't just turn up with a gotcha in an, a range of sizes 
and weights and not catch fish. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. It's just it's just food, you know. Like and it, yeah, that it's very rare that a bonefish will refuse a fly like that. But definitely local knowledge in fly colours does make a difference at the end yep. of the day. Yeah, they tend to they'll tend to lean towards something. But like it's just like trout angling when someone comes out guided trout fishing with me. I mean, particularly in the lakes, you know, they we have a lot of river anglers, so they'll open up and I just go, nah. And that's like, you know, it's just not going to work here, all these river flies. It's the same thing, just make sure when you're at a bonefish destination, you don't have two flies, you know, of two different colours, just have a, options to go to in case they don't eat that that day. You've got the three, five, you know, six different options to go to. So Yeah, if you're putting together a bonefish selection, you want to make sure you've got contrast. Yeah. Different weights and vastly different colours. Yeah, sort of tan. The tan is one we colour we lean to a lot, tan this, tan that. But like you said, sometimes it'll be orange, you know, that's the key that day or on that skinny flat or a bit of rubber legs that day. So, yeah, just have a, have a, have variety in your box. Don't have, you know, 30 of the same fly. So That theory of, like, the colour of the bottom being the same colour as your fly, do you subscribe to that a yeah, bit, Scotty? A little bit, yeah. I know I know when I'm fishing for triggers, yes, and bonefish, yes, they got they got super good eyes. You don't have to be blingy, you know, too blingy about it. They'll see it. Um you can play with bonefish aggression, you know, some hot spots and things like that in the in the flies. But yeah, I like to match. The, I do like to match the bottom. So if it's that sort of sandy colour, I'm looking for more tan and lighter sandy colour flies. If it's that mottled, broken colour, then a bit more colour, maybe a little bit of orange, greens, things like that. Yeah, sort of match the bottom. I know for triggers, um, last trip and that's when Alflexos were sort of the craze, whatever a few years back. Mm-hmm. were just coming in. I just remember when they were coming in for triggers, they were they were bloody good on triggers. The and matching. I remember the locals because the local guides were like, "What are these things?" You know, and they but they were, even though were like we like the, to match the bottom with those things. So sandy, we want a, a white crab pattern or a mottled green for that. So and they were all over it. Like sometimes mm. triggers can play up a bit, but the they seem to really like they respond crabs. well to the yeah. flexo, yeah. yeah, flexo crabs. Yeah, cool. Um, let's move on to like say you've you're at a destination you're DIYing it you rocked up to Christmas or Cocos what is the first thing you look at? Oh, um, yeah, I guess access access would be the big thing and straight away I would be going to a local trying to you know organise a boat yeah you know, for access or some some sort of you know just have a look at the flats if they're there I don't know I haven't been to Cocos yeah. if they're there see what's accessible yeah. from the from the yeah. site the I guess yeah. from the bank, but yeah. um, for Christmas, you, you, I mean, you hundred percent need a boat. There's no doubt about. It. There's it's hundreds of channels with football size flats, and you have to access these. And I even after all these years, I don't know where we. I, I know where Nine Mile is. I know Nine Miles. You know that way. From I can tell some things along the bank, but it is a maze out there, like a maze of flats and channels. And I'm like, you know, I wouldn't want to come through here not without local knowledge on the low tide not being able to go across that flat and all that stuff so, so on knowledge. on your trips it's it's boat days every day boat days every day yep yeah boat days every day but you only for access so it's all walk waiting um throughout the whole trip it's no the boat's only at like a bus service everyone you know we usually have around 10 anglers um and about five guides with those 10 anglers and it's just a drop-off service motor there drop them off there Boat might motor another five, six minutes that way, drop two off, drop two off. And they've got all radios, they'll radio each other in. So a DIY trip somewhere like uh, Christmas would be challenging. You just have to, you'd have to definitely not just roll up there and try and do it. Mm. Yeah. It'd be something you want to organize months out. So, yeah. Yeah. I think in a lot of cases, you're better off just spending the money and, and staying at a lodge. Oh. And if you had time though, and you could, if you, like if you had access to a truck on Christmas Island, oh, you, yeah. you you would catch a lot of fish, but it would be that that process of getting there, getting to the right spot. Um, certainly, I look at Christmas and I'm a whole lot more intimidated by a topographical, you know, Google Maps shot of that place. That yeah. to me looks really difficult to read. But like Cocos, where it's a very uh, uh, typical atoll, it's got current it's got a lagoon it's got yeah. an ocean side to you know you can tell it's got a pass an ocean pass it's got a pass yeah. exactly you know like the fish are going to come in from 
the ocean into the lagoon through a very defined channel. They're going to find their way onto the flats. They're going to move up with water as tides coming in um, and there might be like an almost backwater type lagoon where they're going to no doubt want to feed because it hasn't been covered in water and it's got crabs everywhere. You yeah, know, it like yeah. it's pretty easy, but yeah, yeah it... It'd be cool, wouldn't it? To, you know, the idea of a DIY bonefish trip is great, but it's one you'd only want to attempt with time. There was a book. Did you ever hear of that book, DIY Bonefishing? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I haven't read it, but I, you know, I'm aware of it, and yeah. I think, um, yeah, it, you'd want to know. It just seems like I guess everyone's a bit time poor, and I don't I even myself with young kids. Like, I'm not going to Cocos for three weeks. You know, you're probably going for around that week period and you just, I don't know, it'd be, it'd be challenging to do it. But if you yeah. had the time, like you said, if you were retired or something and, yeah. and you could go to Cokes for two or three weeks and you had a day off or whatever and you got, yeah, you scope at that flat, that was no good. Whatever. Yeah. But if you... Well, I guess like your trips to Christmas Island, five grand with flights around about, let's say. Yeah, five. If you were to DIY a trip like that and set yourself up for two weeks to have the same result in numbers of fish um you're going to spend about the same yeah. <laughs> same well yeah because the boat's still the same size boat so you yeah. have to pay for a boat that's usually divided between 10 people yeah you know so the, the the cost would be if it's a cost thing if you're diying it for cost it wouldn't be it's a non-issue really yeah because it would be a similar cost but if you diying it because you want to do it yourself like mm. this is about me and that's fine um i yeah. know nick Raygart, his film the Search Tahiti, which is 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, it was on DVD. Do you know what DVD is? What's that? What's a DVD? <laughs> Do you know what DVD stands for? I don't know either. That's what I <laughs> Digital. Versatile, maybe? <laughs> Disc? Someone's, someone can uh, – this yeah. goes yeah. out. Can the people comment message on podcasts? Yeah. Message in, yeah. <laughs> Send us a message on Instagram. Anyway. Um, yeah, The Search Tahiti. Those guys jumped on uh, supply ships to get around the outer atolls of Tahiti and uh, hard trip, and it's depicted in the film, uh, the difficulty of doing it and the harshness of that um, – uh, those places, those tropical places with um, rain, uh, sun, exposure, um, the struggle to find fresh water. There's a lot of challenges in these sorts of places, so you, you wouldn't want to go into it without being very aware. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like, I mean, we're always looking for that next adult, the next place, and you are yourself too with, with your trips because you want to go to that. Everyone's got the destination that hasn't been heavily fished or it's new, and they, they exist but the access is a real issue. We've seen islands off Tahiti and we've had locals from Arna say, oh, that one there, my cousin lives over there. There's you know 10 people that live on that island. There's bonefish everywhere. But getting there is near impossible. So you know, you'd have to sail. We talked about sailing there from Arna, you know, a three-day sail. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm out like that, you know what I mean? <laughs> Too hard. Like, well, I'm just thinking, yeah, tropical storms and yeah. it would be a really good adventure, you know. Maybe a single fellow like yourself, Pete, but if you've got kids, <laughs> you know that stuff. He's got many girlfriends to keep happy, though. Um, yeah, uh, yeah it, that is extreme fishing, I reckon. And there's yeah. definitely a few Aussies that are into that that kind of thing, and I think hats off, you know. But, yep. um, yeah, certainly life at home. Yeah. For the DIY bone fisher, it's not, yeah, it's not happening no. for you. <laughs> <laughs> what, did you, what did you do then? I don't know. I just went to speak and nothing came out. Okay. So, if you want to bone fish, what's the best way to go about it? Guided trip. Um, yeah, definitely look at some of the packages that are available. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, you know, your budget might be part of that. Yeah. Um, the there's so many affordable places to do this stuff. It's not. Beyond the realms of your middle class Australian, no, no, no. Say. That's the, I mean, if you've been, if you have paid for a, you know, a week in New Zealand guided trip, it's comparable, like mm. very much comparable. Like if you were doing six days guided fishing, I think a bonefish, um, you could find a bonefish destination for a similar price as a week in New Zealand guide. Absolutely, if not cheaper, if not cheaper, yeah, 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 yeah absolutely, yeah. There's certainly bone fishing trips you can spend tens of thousands of dollars on, but I would point out 
They're not necessarily beneficiaries. They can still have a bad day, a bad trip, a bad week. You know, yeah. um, weather. So you can have, like like any fishing destination. Weather can play. I I think back to a trip to Tahiti after we went there. Saw it myself. I was like, this is awesome. Took a group over there, and it was, yeah, it was a, almost a borderline cyclone coming through. You know, with rain every day, all day, all night, with heavy, you know, you know, forty knot winds all day, like turning it up, and all this fresh water. The lagoon there's not non-tidal. It's an interesting lagoon. It relies on um, a swell, an outside swell, to push the salt water in. So it can be constantly like a run-out tide yep. from the lagoon. Um, and with all that rain, it pushed so much fresh water, and you could see the fresh water on the flats, like which meant no bonefish on the flats. So yeah, it was a yeah. So you can have those disastrous, not disastrous, but it can be a tough fishery anywhere you go. Yeah, so, that's you, know, you just raised something that's pretty important with all of these good bone fisheries is that salt water, that flow. You know, I I think um, I mean the world's becoming a pretty small place, and the fly fishing lodge operations who do have a bit of money behind them, they've scoured the world pretty well and set up where they can for good reason. But the the consistent thing is that tidal flow and salt water. Um, too much fresh water is a bad thing in yep. a good bone fishery absolutely yeah yeah and um like i said with with the normal if you have normal time it's sensational but we're at the realms of you know we can't help mother nature we're just at her mercy and we we adapted we did some d- different things we went out deeper well we just by day three i was like because i was the host so everyone's looking at me like why aren't we catching many bone fish so i was like okay we're going to do this and that and we're going to go deeper we're going to use sinking lines we're going to find these things and at that time, there, you know, that was maybe half a dozen trips in, like commercial trips into that destination. So it hadn't been done before. And I was just like, all right, I've heard about Atataki and the mud, the plumes. And I talked to locals, I was like, we got, does that, and it was, they speak uh, French, French Polynesian. So it's broken. But I eventually found out, yes, they do mud up, but they just thought we wanted to catch them on the flats, which you do, yeah. Yeah. Of course we want, but we had to, you know, we had to do something different. Yeah, when it's and not happening, you still want to be catching catch fish. We want to catch fish, yeah, so we went like that, and they're like, there's a plume, they point out this plume, and we shot over there, anchored up on this plume, and it was moving that plume as they do. And I've never I've never fished to a plume like that. I just heard about Natataki mm. and um, found it, and it was just game on then. It was just like, boom, bone fish, bone like fish, a str- you know, a fish are cast, and ev- then everyone's happy. <laughs> bent rod it's not exactly the way we wanted to catch them pressure's off Scott the pressure's off me I got I got drunk that night nah it <laughs> yeah uh, what about weather though Scotty like what's your ideal weather for bone fishing a uh, blue skies yeah you need blue almost fell off your chair there <laughs> blue skies uh, yeah blue for me it is you do need blue squ- for sight fishing blue skies are better options um but then that's your local guides have really turned on when it gets cloudy, I find. Like they can see stuff. Like I would consider myself above average for sighting fish, for trout fishing. Um, but over there, like they were going 40 feet. This is in heavy cloud set, 40 feet, you know, one o'clock. And I was like, really? Like I know I could, and I could not see a thing. And I just put the fly where they told me, strip, strip a fish on. Yeah. And, and so they, their eyes are amazing, but I, I want blue skies. It's their Smith Low Light igniters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Inbuilt into their eyes. Yeah. <laughs> That's then where the they got the lenses from. Yeah. That's, that's the tech from Christmas Island. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how they see fish and you're just like, why? why? And you start to question yourself because I see people and I take them out and they can't see the trout that I can see. Mm. They're always like, give me your glasses. That's the first thing they ask. So, but it's just time in the water. And they've, that, you know, those guys over in the islands, they eat the fish for food so they use it for survival we, we use them for fun so naturally they're going to be better at something they need to eat you know rather than <laughs> <laughs> so rather than have to catch so for fun so they're i never again i'm gonna go back to tahiti one more time but the dude that that whole trip was sponsored by am i allowed to say costa are they no non-brand Costa Rica? <laughs> Costa Rica. We'll call it Costa Rica. Costa Rica. Yeah, that, that was sorry, sponsored, that was sponsored by a sunglasses brand that I don't want to mention. That but don't make low light. <laughs> they don't make low They light. don't make. <laughs> but anyway, we're on the boat and all these fancy sunnies off and he's had him on his hat. We're motoring out and slapping around because it's sort of bad weather and his sunnies just went shoop over the, you know, over the boat. 
And I said, here, take mine. You use my sunnies because it's more important for you to see the fish than me. You just tell me where to cast. And he goes, no, no, I can still see them. <laughs> and he's like, I was like, what? And it was cloudy day, crappy day. And he was still picking out bones at like 100 feet because I remember I couldn't reach them and I couldn't see them with my sunnies on. And he's sighting them without sunnies. So yeah, wow. naturally they're, they're awesome. So, yeah, Just from yeah. staring at water for so long their whole life they grew since up they were kids, children. Yeah, yeah. yeah, kids staring at that glary stuff, seeing fish. So Catching fish with dad, you know. Yeah. It, yeah. Netting them and all that stuff. So he's finding schools and for food, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Um, what about like preparation, Scotty? What would you say is some good prior preparation for a trip like I love Christmas I love the build up to any trip mm. you get it's exciting to build up and get that gear ready but yeah just the good thing about it, it's all these destinations are warm yeah it's unlike trouty stuff there's no waiters so you can leave your Gore-Tex waiters back at home yeah so yeah, I always make sure make sure you've got a good pair of boots it's one thing I see probably most of any bonefish trip I'll just wear some dive booties you know something like that I'm like Okay, you do you, you know, but but I'm, I'm not recommending that. And then by day, you know, day and a half, their feet are sore because they, they, a lot of these places are hard coral sand. It's like walking on concrete. It's not walking on nice sand down at the beach, down at Bell's Beach area. You know, it's hard. It's uneven. So a, a good pair of boots is what, what I'm looking at to take over. And a good, a good bag and really good sun protection. That's always warm over in these destinations so really good um you know those solar flex hoodies and things like that that you you want to wear but good sun protection make sure you're comfortable i did like the, those guy gloves with the um with the leather uh handset yeah. because i find when you're casting and you're not used to casting even for new zealand if you go six days flat out of fishing i find sometimes you can, you can blister up especially with an eight weight or something a heavier rod 12s so i find those that leather sort of Better for yeah. handling trevally too. Oh, if you want to, yeah, mm. tail grabber trevally, you'd need them for those those weird spikes near their tail. So, so yeah, great fish grabbing sort of thing. So, yeah, I um, think you you know you, if you can cast a heavier rod like an eight weight plus, um, you want to practice that before you go, you know, and actually put a fly on the end. You know, make sure you practice with dumbbell eyes before you you tie some on. Um, yeah, the casting side. The other thing that I reckon is worth practicing before you get to these places is winding. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I've seen more bonefish lost from people that can't wind fast yeah. than I struggle to count. You know, like yeah. it is just ridiculous. Yeah. You know, this isn't just casting. This isn't trout where, you know, you're just going to strip every single fish in. They're bonefish. They're going to take 200 yards of line. You want to be able to wind. Um, probably a good test would be to have someone in a park, you know, make that cast and pretend that they're the fish and then have them bolt towards you. Yeah. And if you can't wind and keep up with that person running towards you and they're slacking the system, first of all, you're going to lose fish. Second of all, you're, you're winding with the wrong hand yeah. or you need to practice. Because you, know, you, you cast, like myself, you cast and retrieve with your right, don't you? Yeah. Cast right, retrieve right. Because Which I would every, lose fish. Yeah, which every... One will tell you, if you cast with your right, you've got to wind with your But there's nothing worse, even out in the trout, we see, like, guys, because they've just been told you must wind with your opposite hand, but and they wind so slowly, and then the slack oh, comes in and they just drop. see it happening in you, slow motion. I'm like, wind faster, and they're like, I can't. And then I give them my right hand, and they wind super quick. And they're like, oh, yeah, because when I used to lure fish, I used to wind with my right hand really quickly. <laughs> and I was like, well, just... Keep doing that then. Yeah. Keep winding with whichever hand you can wind. Yeah. I remember when I used to work in the shop, people would say, what should I hand should I wind with? And I would say, I'd give them a right and left hand retrieve reel and just say, crank as fast as you can. Yeah. And if they looked awkward with their left hand, I'd say, and mm. good with their right, you're right. Yeah. Or if fast with your left, you're left. That's yeah. my what's biggest the, What's the job we're talking about here? Yeah. Winding? <laughs> <laughs> I'm double, I can go even both sides. With my winding. You are whole, just a real. super talent, aren't you? Ambidextrous. <laughs> <laughs> a gifted individual. <laughs> the best guide in Australia, hands down. Yeah. <laughs> um, but seriously, though, that bone fishing opportunities and places to go, uh, you've got some groups coming up uh, next year. This one's booked out, yeah? Yeah. So 23. Uh, so next uh, – 20. Well, we've actually – and I've, this has just come up this morning because we had a meeting with our, our travel agency – which is a US-based travel, fly fishing travel company, 
and there's been an extra room built, I, f- I found out. So we do have two positions available this year in August, but we're really looking forward to next year, really, with this bone, with Christmas Island opening up. Um, and that's in August next year. We've got, yeah, mid to late August, two weeks. Uh, yeah, we're going to... Um, the timing's good for Aussies. If you're in so like Melbourne, for instance, and you want to escape our winter, oh, how good. And that's what we do. We do base our trips around feelings of like it's August, <laughs> winter in Melbourne, like we're just at the end of winter, it keeps on going. So we book it in August because we're sick of the Melbourne winter. It's very cold. And we go to um, Christmas Island, which is right on the equator. So it has... No, no weather patterns at all. It doesn't have a wet season or a dry season. It's always generally about 28 degrees all year round, um, which is fantastic. And get away from the Melbourne winter, jump on the flats, catch a stack of fish. It's heaps of fun. I think the other thing is that the Americans don't tend to be there in our winter, do they? They're not. They, I was talking to guys because we use uh, an American company and they were just like, I said, what's available in August? Like, And they said, the whole of August is available. <laughs> it's your whole, Scott. Take yeah. it. <laughs> the whole lots of what do you want? And I was like, we want the best tides. For one. that's that's mm. the only thing I look at for our trips is the best tides. So they come into their moon phases, which go, correlate to to tides. But I'm looking, I'm usually looking because we have a bunch of guys that want to catch bonefish, and then some that want to go for the GTs. The GTs are going to be more around on full full moons and new moons, so bigger tides. We get more GTs on the flat side. Generally, I'm trying to plan trips around quarter moons leading into fulls or, you know, new moons. So, so it's bonefish, 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 and then all of a sudden here's more shots at Trevally species. So cool. that's generally what we're looking at, yeah. Yeah, so great opportunity there. Uh, we've got one going to Cocos in November. Um, the time of year is, like, less ideal, you know, to escape our winter, but the it's the doldrums there from sort of November through right. to March. So um, generally the weather's a bit more reliable. Having said that, we did get a cyclone when I was there. So <laughs> it's fine. You, you roll the dice in all these places and um, you're always at the mercy of the weather gods. But great time to go and uh, an incredible bonefish destination. So lots of opportunities that are fairly close to home for bonefish trips. Yeah, definitely. Um, if you want to book one of these trips, get in touch with us or get in touch with Scotty at Wilderness Fly Fishing. You can find them on Instagram or the internet. Thanks for today, boys. It's been a pleasure talking about bonefish. Scotty, great to have you back, mate, in the shop. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks, guys, and thanks for having me on again. Catch you next time. Cheers. <laughs>